Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 40. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've been talking about the resurrection appearances of Jesus and have been going through the list supplied by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And we finished discussing the appearance to Jesus' younger brother, James, and how this brought about the remarkable transformation in his life. The next appearance in the list is the appearance to all the apostles. Now, given that Paul's intention is to enumerate the different witnesses to the resurrection appearances, it's unlikely that this is just the same group referred to as the Twelve. Rather, the word apostle was used in the early church in a somewhat broader sense to indicate any sort of Christian missionary. And this appearance was probably to such a limited circle of Christian missionaries, which was somewhat broader than the group of the Twelve. For the existence of such a group, see Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. Luke writes, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So having, uh, since Judas had apostatized and needed to be replaced, they chose to replace Judas from this group of people who had been with Jesus from the time of his baptism by John until the time of the ascension. And so it was probably to such a limited uh, group of missionaries that Christ then appeared. And again, the facticity of this appearance would be guaranteed by Paul's personal contact with these apostles themselves. Finally, lastly, is the appearance to Saul of Tarsus. This appearance is just as amazing as the appearance to James. Last of all, says Paul, he appeared to me also. The story of Jesus' appearance to Saul of Tarsus, or to Paul, of course, uh, just outside of Damascus, is related in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. Acts 9, 1 to 9. And then it is told again twice in the book of Acts. That this event actually occurred is established beyond doubt by Paul's references to it in his own letters. Now this encounter changed Saul's entire life. He was a rabbi, a Pharisee, a respected Jewish leader. He hated the Christian heresy and did everything in his power to stamp it out. He says in his own hand that he was even responsible for the execution of Christian believers. And then suddenly he gave up everything. He left his position as a respected Jewish leader, and he became a Christian missionary. And as such, he entered into a life of poverty, 
labor, and suffering. He was whipped, beaten, stoned, and left for dead, shipwrecked three times in constant danger, deprivation, and hunger. And finally, he made the ultimate sacrifice and was martyred for his faith at Rome. And it was all because on that day outside of Damascus, in his words, I saw Jesus our Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1. So when you look at these resurrection appearances related by Paul, uh, we are in contact here with extremely early historical information about uh, the appearances of Christ to these various individuals and groups of people. The second point um, that I want to uh, adduce in support of the uh, resurrection appearances is that the gospel accounts provide multiple and independent attestation of the post-mortem appearances of Jesus. We, we have more than just Paul's account. The gospels provide multiple and independent attestation of the post-mortem appearances of Jesus. The gospels independently attest to resurrection appearances of Jesus, even to some of the same appearances that are mentioned in Paul's list. The German New Testament scholar Wolfgang Trilling uh, explains it this way for the spelling of his name. Trilling says, from the list in 1 Corinthians 15, the particular reports of the Gospels are now to be interpreted. Here may be of help what we said about Jesus' miracles. It is impossible to prove, quote-unquote, historically, a particular miracle. But the totality of the miracle reports permits no reasonable doubt that Jesus, in fact, performed, quote-unquote, miracles. That holds analogously for the appearance reports. It is not possible to secure historically the particular event, but the totality of the appearance reports permits no reasonable doubt that Jesus, in fact, bore witness to himself in such a way. Tilling's point is that the appearance stories in general occupy such a broad swath of gospel traditions in all four of the gospels that even if you can't prove that this or that particular appearance occurred, uh, all of these could not be dismissed as simply unhistorical fictions. Uh, it's evident from the breadth of these appearance stories uh, in such a diversity of sources that there were these resurrection appearances following Jesus' death. I think Tilling's conclusion is actually too modest for just as we can justifiably infer the historicity of specific miracles of Jesus, uh, for example, his feeding of the 5,000, so we could infer the historicity of some of these specific appearances as well. The appearance to Peter, for example, is universally acknowledged by New Testament critics. The appearance to the 12 uh, is, again, not in dispute even if many critics are skeptical of the physical demonstrations uh, that are featured in these appearances. The appearance to the women disciples 
is independently attested by Matthew and John, and it also enjoys ratification by the criterion of embarrassment given the awkwardness of having uh, women witnesses to the resurrection appearances. It's generally agreed that the reason that the women do not uh, appear in Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 15 is precisely due to this embarrassment. It would be pointless to cite the witness of women to the resurrection appearances given their low credibility in that patriarchal culture. That Jesus appeared to the disciples in Galilee is independently attested by Mark, Matthew, and John. When you put them together, the appearances seem to follow the pattern of the Jewish festival pilgrimages. Uh, first, to Jerusalem, uh, or in Jerusalem, for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the disciples went back to Galilee, and then there were Galilean appearances. And then, two months later, they returned to Jerusalem again for the Pentecost feast, and there were the final resurrection appearances of Jesus. So what should we conclude from this? Well, you can dismiss the appearances as hallucinations if you want to, but you can't deny that the events themselves actually occurred. The uh, late New Testament critic of the University of Chicago, uh, Norman Perrin, puts it this way. Perrin said, the more we studied the tradition with regard to the appearances, the firmer the rock begins to appear upon which they are based. And the skeptical German New Testament critic, uh, Gerhard Ludemann, who is perhaps one of the most important of the critics of the resurrection today, Ludemann himself says, it may be taken as historically certain, and those are his words, not mine, historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. The evidence then makes it certain that on separate occasions following the death of Jesus, different individuals and groups of people had experiences of seeing Jesus alive from the dead. And this conclusion, I think, is virtually undisputed today among New Testament scholars. Well, let's go then to the third and final point, and that is that the resurrection appearances were physical bodily appearances. Now, so far, the evidence that I've presented doesn't depend upon the nature of the post-mortem appearances of Jesus. I've left it an open question whether or not they were merely visionary in character or physical in nature. And it remains to be seen whether even visionary experiences of Jesus after his death could be plausibly explained on the basis of just psychological models. But if these appearances were physical and bodily in nature, then a purely psychological explanation of them becomes next to impossible. And so I think it's worth examining what we can know historically about the nature of these appearances. 
And so I would like to make uh, two points uh, in general in this regard. First is that Paul gives reason for thinking that these appearances were bodily, physical appearances. And he does so in two ways, as we'll see. And then secondly, that the Gospels also support the bodily, physical nature of the resurrection appearances, and they also do so in two ways. First, let's talk about Paul. The first point is that Paul conceives of the resurrection body as physical. Paul thinks of the resurrection body as a physical body. You'll remember when we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 45, we saw that Paul describes the differences between the present earthly body and the glorious resurrection body. And he drew four essential contrasts between the earthly body and the resurrection body. The earthly body is mortal. The resurrection body is immortal. The earthly body is dishonorable. But the resurrection body is glorious. The earthly body is weak. The resurrection body is powerful. And the earthly body is natural, but the resurrection body is spiritual. And we saw that only the last of those contrasts might lead you to suspect that the resurrection body is anything less than physical. But, as we saw, when Paul talks about this distinction between natural and spiritual, he's not talking about the constitution of the body, but its orientation. And we can tell that by looking at the way he uses the same distinction in 1 Corinthians 2, earlier in his letter, to describe the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man does not mean the visible, tangible, material man, nor does the spiritual man mean the invisible, intangible, unextended man, uh, whatever that would be. Rather, Paul is talking about people who are oriented toward the human nature or those who are oriented and dominated by the Spirit of God. Similarly, when it comes to 1 Corinthians 15, the contrast is exactly the same. The uh, natural body is the earthly body under the domination of the fallen human nature. And the spiritual body will be the same body, now glorified, but under the domination and control of the Holy Spirit, a body fully empowered and directed by God's Spirit. But it will be a body. Um, and so Paul's doctrine of the resurrection body implies a physical resurrection. Second point under Paul is that Paul and all of the New Testament makes a conceptual distinction between a resurrection appearance of Jesus and a vision of Jesus. He makes a distinction conceptually between a resurrection appearance of Christ and a vision of Christ. I'm not talking about a linguistic distinction. The same vocabulary can be used of each, but they're conceptually distinct. The resurrection appearances of Jesus soon ceased. They were confined to a very limited time after Christ's crucifixion. But visions of the exalted Christ continued on in the early church. 
the question is then, what is the essential difference between a vision of the risen Lord and a resurrection appearance of the risen Lord? Well, the answer of the New Testament to that question seems to be pretty clear. Uh, a vision, even if it's caused by God, is something that is purely in the mind. Uh, while at a resurrection appearance took place out there in the external world. I think you can see the difference between these two by comparing Stephen's vision of Jesus in Acts chapter 7 with the resurrection appearances of Jesus narrated by Luke. Stephen saw an identifiable bodily image uh, of a man in heaven. But what he saw was a vision, not a man who was actually physically present before him because nobody else experienced anything at all. This was a visionary seeing on Stephen's part, not something that was taking place in the external world where others would see it. By contrast, the resurrection appearances took place in the external world where they could be perceived by anybody that was present. Paul could rightly regard his experience on the Damascus Road as a genuine resurrection appearance, even though it took place after Jesus' ascension and therefore was highly unusual because it did involve manifestations in the external world, which were also experienced by Paul's traveling companions to various degrees. And so this conceptual distinction between a vision and an appearance of Jesus I think also implies that the resurrection appearances were physical and bodily appearances. Any question then about uh, those two points uh, from Paul? How Paul implies that the resurrection appearances were physical and bodily? Yes, Rob? Dr. Craig, did, uh, does Ludeman... <coughs> Since he agreed it was that there had been uh, an encounter by Paul and others, does he, is he still a skeptic because he attributes that to being a vision? Yes, that's part? right. Ludemann is one of those who is trying to revive the old hallucination hypothesis. Um, he believes that what happened was that Paul and Peter each were laboring under guilt complexes. Uh, Peter had denied his Lord three times and felt guilty about it. Paul felt guilty under the uh, Jewish law for his sins. He, he um, was secretly attracted to Christianity because it's a message of grace and forgiveness. And so, in order to alleviate these guilt complexes, he, he suggests that Peter and Paul both hallucinated visions of Jesus. And this is what then led to the belief in the resurrection appearances. So this is a good example of someone who will admit the facticity of the event. He admits that they had these experiences, but then he'll try to provide some naturalistic explanation of these. And so uh, when it comes to finding, well, what's the best explanation of these appearances, we'll revisit this question. Could they have really been hallucinations? And as I say, if this point is right, 
that they were physical and bodily in nature, then I think it just completely undercuts the hallucination hypothesis from the, the, the get-go, from square one. Yes, uh, take one. Dr. Craig, uh, Paul described the body race as imperishable glory, power, and spiritual, and none of this word describe a physical. Every word here is a spiritual world. Well, word. let me put it this way, Taiwan. None of those adjectives imply physicality. I think that's true. But that physicality is implied already in Paul's use of the word soma. Soma is the Greek word that means body. Paul doesn't believe in the immortality of the soul alone. He says that there will be a resurrection body, a resurrection soma. So those words, those adjectives don't imply physicality, but my point is that they don't deny it. In, in, these, in describing the resurrection body as glorious, powerful, uh, immortal, and spiritual, there's nothing that would suggest this is no longer a tangible, physical, extended entity. In fact, that is comprised by the word body. That's what a body is. Okay, I'll let you follow up and yes. then we'll close. Um, last week we were talking about spiritual experiences mm -hmm. or um, experiential knowledge. And I did um, have experiential knowledge of God talking to me. But it's not a audible sound, yes. but it's a clear understanding. Due to the lack of vocabulary, I will say God told me this. Yes. And it will sound like it's a physical talking, but it's a clear, like in experiencing God, that uh, Dr. Henry Blackaby says that everybody that God talked to knows that God is talking to them. And, and yet, it may not be a physical verbal communication, but it's a clear communication of the spiritual nature. Uh -huh. I just don't have the vocabulary for that. Okay. I understand. Now, the application here, I'm going to just make an application and then, and then say something, and then we'll close for overtime. Could the application here be, well, these resurrection appearances weren't really physical and bodily, but due to the limits of Paul's vocabulary, he had to describe them in such a way that just as somebody might think when you say, God told me to do this, they thought you heard this audible voice speaking to you. So when Paul says that I saw Jesus our Lord, that they think he means this in this sort of physical, um, visible way. I don't think that is a good response to what I've just shared. Think of the two points that I've just made. It's not just that Paul uses phenomenal language and saying, I saw Jesus, or Jesus appeared to me, which is admittedly ambiguous. It's that he uses words like soma, body, that Christ has a body with which he rises from the dead, a body that will be the pattern and model for our own resurrection body. And so it's, I think it's clear that Paul is using objective language here, not just subjective personal firsthand reports. He's talking about Christ will have a body. Secondly, think of this conceptual distinction between a resurrection appearance and a vision. I don't know what that difference would be. 
on the model that we say, well, this is just due to limited vocabulary on Paul's part, then that distinction just would fall apart. It, would, it wouldn't make any sense. The best way to understand this distinction that not only Paul but the whole New Testament makes between a resurrection appearance and a mere vision of the exalted Lord is that the one was subjective and in your mind, the vision, but that the appearances were extramental and occurred in the real world. So I think in making these two points, I, I've implicitly undercut the suggestion that this is due simply to Paul's limited ability to express what must have been numinous and phenomenal uh, experiences. All right, let's close then with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for helping us to get through this lesson today, and we thank you for uh, the strength that you, Lord Jesus, provide us as you live in and work through us. We pray you'd continue to do so this week in each of our lives as we honor and love and serve you. Through your name we pray, amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.